Y'all have a good week. Somebody say no. Did you say no? Oh, okay. No, you didn't say no or no, you did not have a good week. Okay, okay, all right. Oh, good. I thought somebody said no. I'm like, sorry, sorry, I didn't have a good week. I had a good week. Uh, it was fun. I got to hang out with a bunch of kids this week, and I tell you guys all the time, kids are cooler than you, and I, I stand by that. Um, that's not an insult to you. That's just a brag on our kids. They're awesome. Um, I, I, do have, I just realized a, a few minutes ago while we were watching that slideshow, um, so the, the material we used is from uh, Answers in Genesis, um, and I realized they messed up. I didn't talk about a didgeridoo once this week. I was really disappointed I didn't get to talk about a didgeridoo. Um, so anyway, that's neither here nor there. It really has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But um, I did have a great time at VBS this week. Um, and honestly, I, I don't know who enjoys, enjoys stuff like that more, me or the kids, because I, I love it. It's, it's fun for me. Uh, I get all excited whenever there's a bunch of kids around and I get to play with kids because I, I'm convinced I'm, I might be a little bit immature every once in a while. And I just like, I, I like to hang out with the kids. So anyway, um, so... I've only got to be a part of VBS here twice because the first year I was here was 2020 and things were crazy and we didn't get to have a VBS like we normally do. So I've only got to be a part of VBS here twice um, in my two and a half years here. Um, But last year I I tried to make it fun for the kids and maybe a little bit fun for myself and um, I I gave myself a nickname for the week. And last year we had a tropical theme so I was Hang Tin Hank. Um, It was was fun, you know, got to pretend to be a surfer dude and got to use a fun voice. Well this year, um, this year I I decided I was going to try to come up with a name again, but it was a little trickier because I thought Outback Jack was going to be perfect until I realized every day we have little um, animal buddies to help us with our lesson. Well, um, there's this kangaroo here. Y'all see that? Um, The kangaroo's name was Jumpin' Jack. So I'm like, well, the stinking kangaroo took my name, so I can't be Jumpin' Jack. Um, That was the only one that really messed with me. I didn't want to be Paula. So um, anyway, it didn't fit me very well, I didn't think. So I decided I was going to be Mr. Down Under um, and just shorten it to Mr. Dunder. Um, I thought that was clever. Dunder, Down Under. Uh, Anyway, I thought that that was fun. But then every day we had a skit, like a a skit. It was like a game show. And you all see the the little boards over here on each side and then the the podium. Well, Danielle was our host, um, and she kind of asked questions to each side. And I got to be a contestant on this game show each day, and my name was Steven. So I decided, okay, well, fine, I can make this work. I'll just be Mr. Stephen Dunda. Um, So I I thought, okay, I got this. But now I've got the kids really confused because some of them know, well, no, your name is Jared. Like, yes, my name is Jared. That's true. Some of them are like, well, you're Hank Tin Hank. I'm like, well, I was, but I'm not really anymore. Some are like, you're Mr. Dunder. I'm like, well, yeah, but you're Stephen. Like, I know I've got a lot of names. Anyway, kids were all kinds of confused. Like, what do we call you? As a matter of fact, I remember one guy, one kid, um, he came in and he said, uh, um, hey, hey, man. Like, just, like, okay, fine. That's, that's fine. Whatever. That's fine. All of those are acceptable. I'll answer to pretty much any of them. And I bring that up for a couple of reasons. One, it allows me to talk about VBS more. And I had a blast. Like, I love getting to hang out with these kids, and I get to talk to them about real things, like how they are created for a reason. Like, they aren't just an accident that came about over millions of years of transformation. No, they were created for a purpose by a loving God who made them and put his image in them. It's awesome we get to talk about that with our kids. Our kids are hearing that you are special, that you are different. You're not just a random accident that came into existence. You're unique. 
Like, you were made for a reason. And God loves you. Loves you more than you can possibly understand. He loves you. Now, we might think that that's a little bit, like, that's kind of obvious, right? We're, most of us in the room, we're adults, right? We know that. Y'all need to hear that, too. You, every single one of you, is created in God's image. Like, you are his image bearers. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says. You were knit together in your mother's room. In mother's room. In your mother's womb. Wow, that's going to take a turn. So, you were knit together in your mother's womb. Womb. Words are important. They mean things. So, uh, wow. (laughs) Somebody else needs to preach, y'all. That's... Goodness sakes. Thank you. I just dismissed. Um, gosh. Uh, where, what was I talking about? Anybody know? Um, you were knit together in your mother's womb with a W. Um, uh, your mother's womb. You, like God knew your days before, before you were even formed. He knew everything about you. He knew who you were. He knew the purpose he had for you. He knew everything about you. And now all you are, all are thinking about is way off the wall. So come on, people. Come back to me. Okay. Now, I bring that up because I wanted to share that with you. And I enjoy talking with our kids about that. It was a good time talking with our kids about how they are fearfully and wonderfully made. Right? It's right there. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Like, does your soul know it? That you were fearfully and wonderfully made. But today, the other reason I bring up all these names that the kids call me is because we're going to look at the calling of another man this morning. We've been walking through the book of Matthew together. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, if you want to open your Bible with me. And I hope that you will. Um, We're going to be looking at his calling. But just for those of you who haven't been tracking or you are like me and you forget everything the minute you walk away. Like, I'm going to give you a, a... 30, it's going to be more than 30 seconds, I'm not going to say that. A quick flyby, a quick, re, a quick recap here, okay? So, what we need to remember is what we're looking at here in the, in the Gospel of Matthew is we're looking at this account that Matthew writes of Jesus' life and his ministry. So, we're looking at this account. And it's written primarily to a first century Jewish audience. Y'all are going to be tired of me saying that by the time we're done. But we need to put ourselves in that mindset if we're going to understand what Matthew is trying to get across. He's writing primarily to a first century Jewish audience. And he's in, in this whole book is intended to show this audience that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The one that they've been looking for. That he is the king of the kingdom that's coming. And now, Jesus, this king, he is ushering in the kingdom of God. Okay? So we need to remember all of that. And as signs of that, in order to show that, we've looked that Jesus, he preached this incredible sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. He preaches this incredible sermon on the Mount, and he lays out what it means, what it looks like to be his follower. Now, it's not like that's everything you need to know, but that's a really good starting point. If you were a newer Christian, you said, Jerry, what should I read? I'd probably say, go read Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And once you're done reading it, go read it again. Like, it's, it's so good, and it's the closest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever issues anywhere, okay? So, Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. And then, Matthew starts recording all of these miraculous events of Jesus to show that he is the Messiah, that he's the, he's the Savior that the world has been waiting for. And as he does, he shows that Matthew, or not Matthew, that Jesus, Jesus, his power and his purpose are, one, incredible, and two, to bring the lost in. To save the lost, to seek and save the lost, to usher in this kingdom. That's his purpose. 
And he shows this power by healing people, right? We talked about the leper who came to Jesus. And what do you not do with a leper? You don't touch him. But Jesus walked up and touched him and made him clean. So he heals the leper. He healed the centurion's servant. He goes to Peter's mother-in-law who had a fever. You're not supposed to touch a person with a fever. He goes and gets up in her face, touches her, and heals her. Right? So Jesus does all these miraculous healings. Then he does these other miracles. And we'll just say miracles over nature. That way we can compartmentalize if you want to. Okay? So he does these miracles over nature, right? Last week we talked about how he looks at a storm and he rebukes a storm. Y'all ever tried that before? Doesn't work for me. Like, good luck. Jesus, he sees the storm and he rebukes it and there's a great calm. Jesus has power over creation. And then he goes and he casts out demons. He even tells a man that his sins are forgiven. Clearly, Matthew is trying to show his audience that Jesus is the Savior that we need, that can cure the uncurable. And along the way, he calls some followers. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look how Jesus calls this man we call Matthew. So would you all stand with me? Let's read God's word together. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 9 and go through verse 13. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Thank God for his word. And you may be seated. All right. We got what? Four verses here? Five verses? Five? I went South Holt. Math is hard. Five verses. That's an insult. A lot of you went to South Holt. Go to South Holt. Sorry. Not sorry. Okay. These five verses. Now they show us... Jesus calling this man. But it teaches us more than just how Matthew was called. It actually shows us some of the results of, God, of Jesus calling on us. Jesus calling to us. So that's what I want us to see today. I want us to see not only the power in Jesus' call, but also the result of that call. What happens after Jesus calls. Okay, And the first thing that we need to see is that Jesus' call it brings us to discipleship. It brings us into discipleship, if you want to say it that way. See, we see that... Matthew isn't just left out here by himself. Instead, he's called to be with Jesus. Verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a name Matthew sitting at the toll booth. Right? Okay. Now, in Matthew's account, it doesn't specifically say that he was a tax collector. It doesn't specifically say that. It kind of implies that by saying he's sitting at a toll booth. But we find from both Mark and Luke's account of the gospel that Matthew is, in fact, a tax collector. Is that really that big of a deal? The answer is yes. It absolutely matters. Absolutely matters. Because, again, who's he writing this to? Anybody? First century Jewish audience. First century Jewish audience. So we need to understand how they would have viewed tax collectors. How they would have viewed them. Okay? Tax collectors were outcasts. They were undesirable. You didn't want anything to do with tax collectors. Uh, Warren Wearsby, he points out that there, uh, there were, they were some of the most hated people in Jewish society. And again, if he's writing, that, writing this letter to a first century Jewish audience, that means that this tax collector is one of the most hated people in his society. These people would have known what a tax collector was, and they would have hated them. Okay? Wearsby writes this. He says, 
They were traitors to their own nation because they sold themselves to the Romans to work for the government. They were considered thieves as well as traitors, and their constant contacts with Gentiles made them religiously suspect, if not unclean. See, these tax collectors were certainly outcasts. Certainly outcasts, because they were working for the Roman government. The Roman government was the enemy of the Jewish people. They were subjugating the, Roman, or the Jewish people. So now they have these overlords that they don't want. But these tax collectors work for those overlords, right? What? So you're telling me that you're, these traitors are going to work for the, the enemy? And that's who these tax collectors were. But not only that, he, calls, he says that they were considered thieves as well as traitors. And you know why he says that? Well, because they were allowed to gather so much. But what typically happened is these, these tax collectors, they would not only gather what they had to gather, but they would gather what they could gather. They would take more than what they actually had to, according to the Roman authority, and they got to keep what was left. It's like making commission. If I'm going to take more, I make more. So they would take whatever they could, squeezing every penny out of their own people. They were hated in Jewish society. D.A. Carson, talking about, uh, talking about how Matthew is the author of this book, he says it is unlikely that a person living on the outskirts of Jewish life could be responsible for this gospel. But, but does it not also seem unlikely that a son of thunder should become the apostle of love or that the arch persecutor of the church should become its greatest missionary and theologian? I just love that. I, I thought that was really good. Look, Matthew... This tax collector who's on the outskirts of Jewish life became the author of the life of, like he, write, he records the life of Jesus for us. And we're talking about it 2,000 years later. You know how unlikely that is? It seems unlikely to me. Maybe not to you, but I think that seems unlikely. But do you look at what Jesus does? He takes the unlikely people and he makes them into something. Isn't that awesome? He took Paul, the arch persecutor of the church. This guy who was overseeing the execution of Christians, who was imprisoning Christians, and he made him into the greatest missionary the church has ever seen. Like, God does incredible things, incredible things with people that you wouldn't expect. Now, Matthew may have seemed unlikely from our perspective, um, but maybe, maybe there's a reason for that. Because we see, we find that Jesus sees him sitting in the tax booth, right? You go to the last part of verse 9. It says, Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed. So Jesus calls this unlikely man, at least by our standards, he's unlikely. So Jesus calls him. And what does Matthew do? He gets up and he follows. Jesus says, follow me. It seems pretty simple, right? Jesus says, follow me. He gets up, he follows. Y'all track with that? I hope you get that, point A, point B, okay? So Matthew, though, I believe he's expressing a little bit of humility here. Matthew would have been a wealthy man as a tax collector, would have had a pretty easy life, wouldn't have, had a lot of, wouldn't have had a lot of trouble. But if we flip over to the parallel account in Luke for just a moment, Luke chapter 5, verse 28, it says, So leaving everything behind, leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow. See, Matthew, Matthew's, as he's recording this account of Jesus' call on his life, I think he's expressing some humility here, saying, well, Jesus called, he got up and followed. Luke shows us what really happened. He left everything behind. This comfortable man, this wealthy man, he says, I'm going to forsake my wealth, I'm going to forsake my home, I'm going to get up and I'm going to follow Jesus. And a few things to note here. First, there is not a single person that is beyond Jesus' call. Not a single person that is too far on the outskirts for Jesus to call. 
No one. Not a single person. This tax collector was on the outside. In fact, I believe it's our weaknesses and a recognition of those weaknesses that make us most suitable for God's use. And I think Paul gets to as much. The Apostle Paul, he writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. He says, brothers and sisters, consider our calling. Now again, remember, this calling that we've received, consider this calling. Paul writes, not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. Look, you may not think that you are very special. I've talked to people who don't think that they're anything very special. And you may be right. No, let me rephrase. You are right. On your own, you're not terribly special. On my own, I'm not terribly special. Which is exactly what makes me suitable for God's use. Because his glory is shown in our weakness. Our weakness. Now, I'm going to go one step further. See, we may know that about ourselves. Like, okay, I know I don't have a leg to stand on on my own. I know that. Like, maybe you know that about yourself. But let's just extend that a little bit. Those people that we oftentimes look at as undesirable... Those people that we think, well, maybe they don't have a lot to offer. Or we think, well, they're kind of on the outskirts of our society. We oftentimes, maybe we wouldn't like say that we don't want anything to do with them, but functionally we act that way. We pretend, well, they don't really have much to offer. And we think, well, okay, so what? They're out there doing their own thing. Okay. Those are the people that God wants. And we're going to see that even more in just a minute. Not saying that he doesn't want the rest of the people. He doesn't want any to perish, okay? Don't mishear me, okay? But what I'm saying is those people who are on the outskirts are oftentimes the people that God uses in incredible ways. Why? Because his power is shown in our weakness. These people are doing things. Matthew does things that he couldn't have done on his own. He was an outcast in Jewish society, and he winds up recording the life of this Jewish Messiah. Like, Matthew knows this as well as anybody. So we see it here. We see it here. This weakness becomes a strength. See, whenever we really think that we're something special, we have a problem, right? Because one of two things has to be true. If we think that we're pretty special, one of two, now, first of all, we talked about how our, to our kids about how they're wonderfully made and they are created in God's image, so they are special. Uh, I'm, I'm going to mess with you for just a minute, okay? So just, I hope you can track with this, okay? Whenever we think that we're special and that we don't need God, I'll go that way, Okay? Whenever we think, I don't really need a Savior, I'm doing okay on my own, I'm getting by, I mean, things are going pretty good for me, I'm comfortable, I'm okay. We have one of two problems. Either one, we don't recognize who God is, we don't recognize his infinite power, his great mercy, his amazing grace, we don't realize how awesome God is. I remember the times in my life when God has just reminded me, like, Jared, you don't realize how awesome I am. And just, like, it's so humbling to see how powerful God is, how great God is. And whenever we are in awe of God, we start to realize, okay, I'm not as special as I thought I was. Y'all ever had those moments, or am I the only one? This has been like, God is amazing. Like, beyond comprehension amazing. And whenever we realize how awesome he is, we realize that we are less. Okay? The other part of that that I want to look at, and not only if, if we think we're something special and we don't really need God, either we don't recognize who God is, or two, we don't recognize who we are. We are bearing his image. The problem is, we are sinners. We have marred that image. We have broken that fellowship with the creator who loves us. We messed that up. Um, I, I got to talk about this with our kids, actually. 
this week, and we had these little posters, and uh, one of them, I thought this was really funny, and Courtney messed with me a little bit. I don't even know where she's at, but anyway, she messed with me just a little bit because we had these posters, right, that kind of played out the gospel, gospel image, right? So we had the Garden of Eden where everything's perfect. Everybody's um, in perfect fellowship with God, but then we had the, the next scene was the serpent coming to tempt. Oh, there you are. I see you now. Um, Sorry, I'm not meaning to point you out. Everybody, there's Courtney. Um, anyway, so then we had this next scene where there's this serpent who's tempting Adam and Eve, right? Saying, but did God really say you would die? Right? So we had this picture, but I thought this was really interesting. You all ever seen depictions of the Garden of Eden in the first temptation? What's the fruit? It's always depicted as an apple, right? Always. Like, I've never seen a picture with anything but an apple. And this particular one, it was grapes. It's like, huh. Bible doesn't say it was an apple. It was so they showed grapes. But Courtney messed with me a little bit and said, um, "It did say it came off of a tree. Grapes don't come off trees." I'm like, oh, thanks for nothing. Now it's messing with me. So anyway, um, <clears throat> so the point is, the point is, if you don't think that you need a savior, then you don't understand who you are. See, when Adam and Eve failed in the garden, we all failed. Every single one of us is a sinner. I think Alan talked a couple weeks ago. I think it was Alan. I'm probably citing the wrong person. Um, so if, I, if I'm citing the wrong person here, correct me later. said, we don't sin, or we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Guys, we're sinners before a perfectly holy God, which means that rightfully we deserve God's wrath. Like we deserve eternal torment in hell, and he's right for issuing that decree. So whenever we stand before God and say, well, I don't really know that I need a Savior. What we're saying is, God, my sin's no big deal. Are you kidding me? I don't think you understand who we are before God. We are sinful creatures deserving nothing but hell and condemnation. And we talked about that during VBS this week. But then we also talked about how every single person is created in the image of God. But because of that sin, it's been marred. But what does God command of us then? How does he write that? Well, he loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. And not only did he die for us, then he was raised on the third day for our justification. Like, that's the good news. That's why we're here. You see, Matthew's call here, let's just bring it back to Matthew. This call here brings him back into fellowship with Jesus, with God in the flesh. He comes back, and he is now being discipled. See, whenever Jesus calls him, he's not calling him just to say, hey, know this thing or say these words or say this prayer. No, he's calling him to something much bigger. Whenever he says, follow me, whenever Jesus says that to Matthew, what he's saying is, come, sit under my teaching. Walk with me, talk with me, pray with me, serve with me, learn with me. Like, you're going to be here with me this whole time under my teaching. See, Matthew knew his own weakness. He knew that he was on the outskirts. And whenever Jesus comes along and says, come, follow me, he's saying, come, be my student, be my disciple. This call is to discipleship. And likewise, whenever Jesus calls us, we're being called to discipleship. We're being called to discipleship. So Jesus' call brings us to discipleship. Second thing we learn is that Jesus' call brings us into fellowship. It brings us to fellowship. Okay? So, Jesus calls Matthew, then we get to verse 10. And it says, while he was reclining at the table in the house. Okay, whose house are they reclining at? Well, again, this particular, this particular account doesn't tell us. If we look at Mark and Luke, it says very clearly that this is Matthew's house. So not only did Jesus call Matthew, but then he goes to Matthew's house. This guy on the outskirts of Jewish society. Now he's going to go to his house and dine with him. And Mark and Luke tell us that it was his house, so I'm confident in saying that. But again, 
Matthew leaves that out. Why? Well, I believe, again, it's a sign of humility. He's not trying to make the story about him. He's making it about Jesus. So that's my belief of that. But it says, while they were reclining at the table, last part of verse 10, it says, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus calls Matthew. And then what does Matthew do? (laughs) I love this. Matthew invites his friends to come meet Jesus. (laughs) You all know that's the way it's supposed to work, right? Like, we, we are awakened to who Jesus is, to our own sinfulness, to our own need for repentance. And you know what we're supposed to do then? Tell your friends and your family, tell those people around you, hey, here's Jesus. You know what he did for me? I w-. But see, what we need to learn is that Matthew isn't told, hey, just go live this life on your own. You have to live it in isolation as a monk out on a hill out here. That's not what he's told. Not what he's told is all. I'm not saying that isolation is always a bad thing, but what I'm saying is that Matthew is not alone in this. He is with others who gather around the person and the work of Jesus. They come together around Jesus. And it's not just all these non-Christians who are coming to eat with Matthew and Jesus happens to be there. He's the focal point. It says that they came and they ate with Jesus and his disciples. Like these, these Christian men, I understand why I'm using Christian in a pretty broad term because this is before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So anyway, understand, these men who are following Jesus, they come together around fellowship with Jesus. That's what the church is. Like we come together around fellowship with Jesus. Like that's why we come together. Because we know Jesus and we've been united with him. Now we come together as a church around that fellowship that we have with him. That's why we do this. That's why we're together right now. At least I hope that's why you're here. Like we come together in fellowship around him. Now, if you're new here or you say I'm not really plugged into a church, I want you to know this, okay? You need, and I I put that in all caps in my notes, you need to be a part of a local church. And I really believe that. I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor. I'm saying that because I believe it's true from God's word. We need to be a part of a, of a local church. We need people around us to encourage us, to build us up, and to point us back to Jesus. We need those people in our lives. Now, these people look funny to those on the outside. Apparently, anyway, they look funny because the Pharisees are like, why is Jesus eating with those people? That doesn't make sense. Jesus, why would you sit with those people? So they look funny on the outside. But they came together around Jesus. These Pharisees, they asked in verse 11, it says, uh, and by the way, they ask the disciples. They don't go straight to Jesus. Do you all think that's a little, a little funny? Um, now, why didn't they go? We'll get to that in a minute. But they ask the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because eating with these people would have put Jesus and his disciples at risk for being ceremonial and clean, but they did it anyway. And why? Why? Why would they have eaten with them? Well, the answer, we're going to flesh it out more, and again, in just a moment, but we'll stay here and we'll talk about the need for fellowship. They came together because they need fellowship. They, and I'm not just talking about what we often say is fellowship. We get together and we're like, we ate, so we had fellowship. No, I'm talking about real fellowship. Like getting together and actually talking about Christ, talking about his word, talking about his, the way he works and the way he moves and encouraging one another. Because we believe the end of the Bible is true, that there's a day that Jesus is coming again and we want to be prepared for that day. So we need to come together to encourage one another, to have fellowship with one another. True fellowship with one another. And now I've completely lost what I was talking about. Now, this is important. This is important, okay? As I read this, I asked myself, should we, like Matthew, whenever we become Christians, should we, like Matthew, continue to hang around with our non-Christian, our unsaved friends? Should we? 
I think that's an important question because Matthew here does. But there have been times I've actually advised people from avoiding particular relationships. Um, and I'm not backpedaling here. I think that the answer to that question, should we continue to hang around with our non-Christian friends, I think the answer is maybe. Or sometimes. I think that's the answer to that. And I think it requires an awful lot of wisdom. Okay? And just so you know, whenever Matthew hangs around with his unsaved friends here, there's a couple things that we can note. First, the context. Understand how and when he's hanging around these unsaved friends. Matthew continued these relationships, but whenever they get together, they come together when Jesus is there. Notice that. Like, they come together around Jesus. That's a big deal. Now, there are times that I've had to walk away from friendships, and it hurts. It's not fun. It's not a good time, because I I love my friends. I, I do. But there have been times where I've had to stop spending time with certain friends because I know my own weaknesses, and I know that if I'm around them, it's not good things for my life. And honestly, that's a bad influence on their life. So I know that there are times I need to avoid those things in certain situations. But yes, we should spend time with our non-Christian friends. Of course we should. Because otherwise, how are they going to become Christians? So the context, I think, is incredibly important. Notice that Matthew does this in his own home. In his own home. In in an environment he can control. He's not going to their place. Not going to hang out on their terms. He's hanging out in his place with them coming to him. And the best thing that we can do, best thing that we can do with our non-Christian friends is invite them into the presence of Jesus. It's the best thing we can do. Hang out in an environment around Jesus. Invite them to church on a Sunday morning. Absolutely invite your friends to church. Even your non-Christian friends. I'm good with that. Absolutely. You know why? Because I'm confident they're gonna op- we're going to open the Bible. We're going to read what the Bible says. And hopefully at some point you hear that you're a sinner. You're in need of a Savior who loved you so much he would die for you and he was raised for your justification. I hope and I pray that they hear that every single week. And I'm pretty sure they will because I think I say that every week. So invite them to church. Invite them to a Bible study. Invite them to dinner with other strong Christian friends. Absolutely hang around your non-believing friends. But do so in the context of of praising Jesus. Making Him known. Absolutely. And then pray that God would bring them into fellowship also. And the point that I want to make through through this part right here is that Matthew now had fellowship not only with Jesus, but with other strong Christian friends. With other followers of Jesus. And we need that also. We need that fellowship. So, thank God for it. So Jesus' call brings us to discipleship, brings us to fellowship. But finally, I want to show you that Jesus' call, it actually turns us to his mission. Jesus' call on our lives, it turns us to mission. So <clears throat> Jesus, of course, remember, these Pharisees, they, they went to his disciples, not to him. They said, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus gets word of this, right? <clears throat> and why didn't they go to him straight away? Well, I believe, <laughs> I believe that Again, this is because Matthew's writing is not chronological. It's thematic. And I believe that by the time this happens, I believe Jesus has already made the Pharisees look like fools enough times that they're done going to Jesus. They're like, you know what? Maybe we can get his disciples because Jesus doesn't mess up. Like, we haven't been able to get him trapped yet. So let's go to his disciples. Maybe we can trap them. Anyway, that's what I believe. I don't know that to be true, though. But look what he says then in the last part of verse 12. He says, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Now, stay with me for just a minute here, because I want to walk through this and some of the implications of this, okay? Jesus says he came for those who are sick. Now, in this context, who are those who are sick? He's talking about the tax collectors and the sinners, right? They are the ones that are sick. 
Okay, clearly that's who he's referring to whenever he says, I came for the sick. Now, when I read that, I thought, does that mean that the Pharisees are not sick? Are they well? I would contend that the answer is no, they are not well. I don't believe that they are. As a matter of fact, I think that they are sick with something much worse than what these tax collectors and sinners are sick with. Um, that's, that's my understanding. I believe what the Bible says whenever it says, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Every single person, including these Pharisees, they were just a different kind of sick. Okay, so when do you go to the doctor? You all know this. When do you go to the doctor? When you're sick, right? Some of you are like, I never go to the doctor. I'm way too macho for that. Anybody? Some of you are just smiling. That probably means you're that person. Yeah, nobody wants to admit it, though. Uh-huh. I see you. Uh-huh. That's good. I'm that guy a lot of times, too. Um, I've kind of turned into a baby as I've gotten older, though, so I go to the doctor more. Anyway, so when you go to the doctor, it's not when you think you're well. When you think you're well, it's when you're sick, right? It's common sense. You get sick, you go to the doctor so that you can become well again, right? But see, there's a catch. These people aren't going to the doctor, are they? The doctor's coming to them. He's making house calls. He's coming to them. The problem the Pharisees have, and the problem I believe many of us have here, is the same. I believe that we have the same problem that many of these Pharisees had. And that is this. The doctor shows up, and we shut the door on him because we think we're too well for the doctor to spend time with us. We think that we're okay. That's me, not just what I'm saying about you all. Like, we have a tendency, especially in our context, where we live today, to think, well, I'm pretty capable on my own. I've got a job. I'm not hungry. My kids are fed. My kids are clothed. Like, I don't have to worry about things. I've got a nice home. I've got vehicles that drive. Like, I'm doing okay. And I think a lot of times we don't realize we need a doctor. We don't realize that really we are terminally ill. I don't think we get that. I think a lot of times we're just like these Pharisees. And I think they're sick. I don't think Jesus is saying, well, they're fine. They're really okay. I think what he's saying is that he's going to the people who know they're sick. See, that's the thing. We oftentimes shut the door on the Savior because we don't realize we need him. All the while, we're dying on the inside of a disease that is far worse than the others. See, these guys were sick, certainly with pride. And it was tearing them apart like a cancer that's eating them from the inside out. They just didn't know it yet. Then Jesus tells them, he tells him. So it's like he says, okay, okay. He says, look, it's not, I, I came for the sick. They're the ones that need the doctor. It's not the well who need the doctor. I came for the sick. But then he, tell, he turns to the Pharisees and he says, he says to them, go and learn what this means. <laughs> this is funny if you read it in the first century Jewish context. <laughs> it's funny. Jesus turns to these religious elites, these people who study for a living, who know the scriptures, and he turns to them and quotes scripture and says, he says, why don't you go and learn what this means? Like, this is actually a rabbinic formula. So this is something rabbis would say to their teachers whenever they got a little out of hand. And it's, uh, it's sort of sarcastic the way he says it. Um, now, do I believe Jesus was sarcastic? I think he was sometimes. So I think he was hyperbolic to get his point across from time to time. Um, so I believe that right here he's saying this to these, to these guys, and he's turning to these Pharisees who study for a living and say, you guys need to hit the books a little harder. Like, that's what he's telling them. Like, you guys got some learning to do. Come on now, you, need, you should know this by now. It's like, if you guys come to me and I ask you a question, you answer wrong, it's like, yeah, sure, you know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. He's, I think he's being a little snarky with them. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, which these men clearly knew. 
These men would have known. These were Pharisees who study for a living. This is what they do. And he quotes Hosea 6.6, and he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This word mercy, saying this is what God desires in the Greek, is a fun word. It's, uh, it's elios. Elios. It means mercy, pity, or compassion. So these Pharisees, they are being anything but compassionate with these tax collectors and sinners. They're saying they're outcasts. Why would you even eat with those people? Why would you want anything to do with them? They're being anything but compassionate. And Jesus realizes that all they're doing is these people who want to have faith in the Jewish Messiah, this Messiah who's come. They want faith in him. He's saying, why would you even touch them? Stay away from them. These people who are new to faith, and he's putting a barrier, they're putting barriers up for them, marginalizing them further. But Jesus points out that compassion, compassion should be the defining characteristic of these followers. They should have compassion on them. I desire mercy or I desire compassion for these people. Jesus says, look how hypocritical you're being. You're not showing them mercy. You're not showing them compassion. And I think it's interesting that at, this is a quote from the Old Testament, right, which was written in Hebrew, largely in Hebrew. The word in the Hebrew that's translated as Elias into the Greek, it's actually the Hebrew word hesed. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And again, now this might be wading off into the weeds a little too far, but I still want to touch on this because this is fun. Okay, This Hebrew word hesed, it means kindness, especially extended to the lowly, needy, and miserable. Okay, I looked it up in the Christian Standard Bible, which is what I, I typically preach from, the Christian Standard Bible. This word is used 245 times in the Old Testament. This word hesed is used 245 times. Almost two-thirds of those is translated as faithful love. What we're talking about here, whenever he says, I desire mercy, it's this word hesed. I desire faithful love. That's what God desires from us. This faithful love, especially as it's extended to the lowly, needy, and miserable. In other words, even greater than following all the rules, this sacrificial system that was set up, even greater than that is showing faithful love to those who need it. That is so much greater. So much greater. And now, whenever I say faithful love, understand, I'm not saying it in the way the world uses love. I'm not saying it in some weak or superficial way like, oh, it doesn't matter how you live. Like, that's, not, that's not the point. It's not the point. Like, whenever I say faithful love. I'm not saying just, well, just go live, live however you want. It doesn't matter. Oh, so you're stuck in a pornography addiction? Just stay there. It's okay. It's okay. God, God's faithful love is there. Just keep going. Or you're saying, you know what? Um, you know what? I have a gossip issue. Like I know I talk about people behind their back way too often. It's like, oh, that's okay. It's, that's not what faithful love is. It's not what faithful love is at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus shows us what faithful love looks like. He comes and he dies for people as we were but then he changes us. Every time somebody encounters Jesus and he shows faithful love to them, they leave changed. Every time. Like, you don't believe me, show me one where they just keep going the way they were before. You know, why? I'm confident saying that because it's not there. People are always changed whenever they encounter Jesus and his faithful love. Always. And what he tells us is that's what God desires from us. This faithful love to go and see people changed by the good news, by the love of God. We need to go and see them live differently. We need to love people unconditionally, regardless of how they are today, knowing that they're going to be different in the future because of that faithful love. And whenever we realize this, when we realize this, then we can begin to see that Jesus didn't just come to call the righteous or I'll say self-righteous people. It's not the kind of people he came for. It said what he came for was to call sinners. People who knew their great need. And that's what he does time and time again. 
I mean, go to the New Testament, you'll see these people who realize that they are sinners, they desperately need of a Savior, and again and again, Jesus calls them, and they are changed by the good news of Christ. I suppose, since that's the case, it's probably a good thing I'm talking to a room full of sinners. Um, I just hope you all realize that. Like, that you are the one that he came to call. That you are the sinner who needs the doctor. You're the one who needs to be changed. I'm the one that needs to be changed. That's us. That's who we are. And what Jesus does here, what Jesus does here is he responds to these Pharisees. He issues this rebuke to the Pharisees to show them that they shouldn't be quite so proud. He shows compassion to those he was eating with. But he also teaches his followers what it meant to to follow him. That part of that would mean that they needed to be on this mission to extend this faithful love to those who need it most. See, Jesus wasn't just the doctor going from house to house. He was doing something far bigger than that as he did it. See, whenever Jesus went from house to house making these house calls, not only was he healing people, but he was also teaching those who were following him how to make those house calls. Jesus was discipling them, right? He was training them for what they needed. See, whenever you come into the family, whenever you become a follower of Jesus, he's not just saying, well, I made you well, so now you're good. Go sit down. That's not the point at all. As he's doing this, he's doing it in front of his disciples saying, look, it's not just those who are well that I came for. I came for the sick. So go to the sick. We should be taking the good news. We should be moving towards other people. And if we say we're followers of Jesus, but we're not taking the gospel to those who need it, we're not taking the gospel to sick people, I don't think we understand the gospel. Or at least we don't understand the king of the gospel. Like, that's his mission. It should turn us to mission. Well, think about it this way. If Jesus is this doctor who's come to heal, then we're like med students who are following this doctor around so we can learn how to do it too. Okay? That's who we should be. Those people learning to do what Jesus did, to take the good news to them. So Jesus' call brings us to discipleship, fellowship, and it turns us to mission. So what? Well, I hope you can tell where all this is going somehow through all of this. Um, I got to spend every morning this week, every morning this week, talking to groups of kids um, for like two and a half hours every day. I got to talk to groups of kids about how they are made in God's image, about how they are fearfully and wonderfully made, about how all people are in, have inherent worth because of the image of God within them, all people, like regardless of race, gender, location, religious background, etc. All people have inherent value because they're made in the image of God. But I also got to talk to them about how they are sinners and how Jesus provides a solution to the sin problem. He, he provides the solution. And again, like I said, we oftentimes think, well, I'm so mature. Like, I know all that. Like, we've talked about this since I was in, like, like second grade, right? People, I've known who Jesus was. For, I'll give you an example. I, I personally, like, I remember being saved whenever I was 12 years old. I was 12 years old. So oftentimes I hear some of this stuff that's a little more elementary, like Jesus' calls should change you. Like Jesus calls you because you're a sinner and you need his grace. And oftentimes I'm like, I hope you're still amazed by that. And if not, I don't think you know who God is and who you are. Like, I hope that you see his faithful love. And oftentimes we think we're too mature for that. But what really, what that shows us is that we have the same pride the Pharisees had. The same pride the Pharisees had. They didn't think they needed the Savior. They think, okay, we got all the basic stuff figured out already. We already know all this stuff. Jesus, why are you here telling us that I desire mercy, not sacrifice? I know that already. No. No, you don't. Like, we still have so much growing, so much learning to do. And I hope you see that the good news of Jesus is the very thing that should help you to grow in his grace. The fact that he loved you so much while you were still a sinner running in rebellion against him. He loved you, and he pursued you. 
I don't care how ugly or how unworthy you think you were. He pursued you. I don't even care how good you think you were. He pursued you because you were a sinner in need of a Savior. And that same truth is the same thing that should drive us outward to go take the gospel to the sick. The fact that he saved us while we were yet sinners. Look, if you have never received Jesus, if you have never submitted to him as the Lord of your life, I'm just going to tell you I want you to do, I want you to do that. Like, I want you to submit to Jesus as the king, as the ruler, as the savior of your life. I want that from you. I want that for you. Absolutely I do, unashamedly, because you have a disease that's like a cancer that's eating you from the inside out. And at some point, it will destroy you. And I'm not just talking about an earthly destruction. I'm not just saying you're going to die once. What the Bible talks about is this eternal death that we go on dying if we are not in Christ. I don't want you to spend eternity separated from God in hell. I don't want that for you. But that's what the Bible says will happen if you die in your sin. If you do not die in Christ, you spend eternity separated from Christ. I don't want that from you. So I'm urging you, repent and be saved. Because Jesus came to heal you. He loved you so much. And now you can spend an eternity with Christ. If you, don't, if you haven't submitted to that king, do so. Like, today. Don't wait. Submit to that king. And if you have, like you say, okay, Jared, yeah, I know this. I am a Christian. Great. Fantastic. You know what that means for you and me then? That means that that should drive us into the world so that we then take that good news and tell other people about it. <laughs> it also means that we should want to grow in that grace. So I urge you, if you remember, if you have that healing, remember the healing that he brought you to, the forgiveness that he gave you, and let that drive you to his mission. That's how I want to encourage you today. I'm just going to end with Jesus' words here. He says, remember, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let's pray together. Father, um, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this truth. Um, Lord, I thank you for these people who come together to fellowship around your word. Um, Lord, but most of all, I thank you that you save lost sinners like me. Lord, with at your goodness, I'm destined for hell. But it's so much greater than that. Not only do I get to be removed from the punishment, but you also issue a reward just because of your kindness. Lord, just, just because of what Christ did. Not anything that I did, but because of what Christ did. I get to know you forever. I get to be called your son. Father, so for that, I, I just want to praise you. What an awesome, awesome, glorious truth that you've revealed to us in your word. Father, I just pray for those who haven't received that grace. Father, I pray that they would submit to you as the king of their lives. That they would lay their life down, say it's no longer mine, but it belongs to Christ who's in me. Um, Father, so that they can experience not just the loss of life. It sounds like such a bad thing, but Lord, whenever we surrender our lives, we get to experience true joy because we're doing what we're made to be doing. So Lord, I pray that you would bring people to repentance and faith today. Lord, not next week. I pray that you would do that today. Lord, I I beg you, save people today. Lord, and for those of us who do know this, God, I pray for strength as we go, as we carry your word to those around us. I pray that you would empower us by your spirit, that we would experience this power that we've been talking about the last several weeks, that we would experience your power in us, and that we we might walk in that power as we take your good news to those around us. Father, let us be faithful ambassadors as you've called us to be. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for loving me. Um, 
despite the fact that I'm a sinner who needed you. Lord, I thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving us. I thank you for Christ who lived the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve, um, but who was raised for our justification. Lord, we praise you for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.